This is My Montessori Life, a podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, president of Montessori Europe and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the teacher's textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. In this first of three podcasts on the theme of activism, Barbara and David discuss Maria Montessori's role as an activist, a leader who speaks up and disrupts the status quo to push forward urgent social change. Her best-known activist cause was about protecting the well-being of children, but she also catalyzed advances towards women's rights, world peace, nature conservation, and many other matters of social conscience. While remaining firmly apolitical, Montessori was far ahead of other educationalists in not only standing up to the established order, but also in creating a new, far-reaching alternative way forward, whose mission is to educate the human spirit. Barbara, welcome back. And um, we're delighted to be doing another in our series of podcasts, this one on activism. So to get started, let's talk about Maria Montessori as an activist. If we, if we define activism as inciting social change to make a better world, do you think Maria Montessori would have considered herself an activist? I think she would have done because she was actively engaged in promoting women's rights and above all, promoting children's rights. She wanted children to be able to contribute to the social order of the world into which they are growing up. And in order to be able to do that, we, we needed to change not only education, but in retrospect, we also need to look at our parenting and we need to look at our relationship with the planet. So in, in earlier podcasts, we talked at some length about her feminist credentials and her ideas about the rights of the child and her connection of education to movements for world peace. Um, were there other more, um, more unusual or particular uh, kinds of social change that she was interested in that you can think of from her, from her past? I, I think she was very explicit about the way in which she envisaged that world peace could be achieved. And she advocated social justice as the underpinning quality for world peace. But um, she has never given us any guides or tools how this social justice should look uh, from the kind of practical term apart from saying that education needed to nurture the spirit of the child. And that is quite a esoteric connotation to, I mean, what do we really understand by the spirit of the child? What do we really understand by the spirit of the human being? Yeah, she, she did have a particular perspective, which maybe was more of her time. I mean, maybe those kinds of phrases resonated more with people in the early part of the 20th century than they do in the early part of the 21st. Yes, maybe, but 
the people who are engaged in uh, early childhood education very much talk about the spiritual element of the human being, uh, not seeing it in context of any particular dogma, but understanding that there is something unique within the child uh, which uh, embodies the uniqueness of each individual child. So the spirit of the child needs to be nurtured as much as potentially the physical or emotional or even cognitive development of the child, it forms part and parcel of the human being, according to Montessori, and also according to the way how early childhood educators see the child. So uh, there have been several authors who have written about um, uh, the spirituality of the child, the, the kind of sharing of the wonders of the world, um, the child giving us insights into their perspective of the world, which is uh, often quite unique and yet very connected either with nature or with relationships with other human beings. I, I do think that's um, there's an element of spiritualism in almost all activism. And there's a kind of not just seeing a wrong that needs writing, but there's a feeling that the the order of the world or the order of the universe is somehow being disrupted um, by the injustice and that order needs to be restored in, in the context of that spiritual holistic view of everything together. And that I think all, well, this is why there tends to be a lot of activism in relation to things like all of humanity or all of the environment rather than saying, oh, you know, these particular people over here need to have a pay rise. So um, I think that activism and, and spirituality do have a natural connection. Well, I, I suppose that in that context, if we really think about humanity um, thousands of years ago, we have inherited some of the connectedness with nature. We have inherited some of the connectedness to the spirits of the world that have been so celebrated by the indigenous nature. And it is interesting that during COVID, we have been urged to explore more how um, indigenous communities connect with community in which they live and the opportunity that we have to learn from them, turning away from some of the more uh, economy-focused driven um, existence, which uh, guides most of the 21st century lives today. Yeah, I think it's, it's a bit early still to talk about the positive impacts of COVID, but it's definitely created a lot of social change and created a lot of rethink about our place in the world and how people relate to each other and what our priorities are for life. So a lot of activists use a whole range of disruptive practices. And Montessori was a great writer and speaker. And for example, her public address, uh, her I think more than one public address to the International Women's Congress, they were influential catalysts to social progress. But did she also participate or organize other kinds of activist practices like campaigning or rallies, boycotts, marches, uh, 
collective action and things like that? Or was she very much stuck to her writing and speaking? I think she very much kept to the sphere of influence, which she understood. And she, on several occasions, um, related back to her role as a pedagogue, as an educationist, rather than her role as an activist. She said many times that she is not political. She will, and she will not support any political parties, but she did want a change for the child. So she was a kind of passive activist through her writing, promoting uh, engagement in our understanding of children, in our understanding of the uniqueness of each child and the need to support those children, particularly in the first six years of life when they are so able to absorb influences, um, positive and also negative, of course. I guess she wanted to be apolitical because she wanted to have a universal um, audience. You know, she didn't want people to say, oh, Montessori, that's connected with this particular political party or that particular governmental policy, um, which is great. I think that that was a wise approach. I think it's hard to separate activism from politics on a, on a practical level, because in the end, people either align with your values and want to see change, or they resist change, maybe because they've rejected the values or because they have a different set of values which they think have a higher priority. So um, I think it is hard for activists to not be political, but if anyone managed it, she certainly did because Montessori has appeal today pretty much everywhere. Um, mm. And I've never heard of a case where people from one political party or another say, oh, that's not for us or that doesn't apply to us. Only occasionally in relation to its availability. So um, you know, who has access to Montessori, I think, has become a little bit politicized, but um, there's huge efforts to make it accessible, you know, at all levels of society, I think. I, I think that, well, I wish I could give her this very um, wise approach to being non-political and yet being an activist. I think that there were occasions when she was swayed by the opportunity to make um, her approach to education more accessible, like her um, early um, connection with Mussolini. Um, she was the opportunity of having all children in, Mont in Italy having access to her approach to education was so tempting that she initially was slightly blinded by his um, political inclinations, but she realized very quickly that this actually wasn't for her. And maybe the reason why she didn't want to be so political goes back to her early start as a doctor. Maybe her biggest political fight of her life was to actually um, get into the medical school in Rome, because that was... Um, maybe not conscious, but definitely a political statement on behalf of women. So when and how did her original children's house in Rome become more than just a kind of interesting innovation that was attracting publicity and start to become a kind of organized or sustained social movement? When, how, how did that transition take place? I think that was possible because of the 
international trends in Europe um, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Um, there was a deep interest in social change. There was a deep interest in um, education. We can align it, for example, with the Quaker movement, who established lots of schools. So there was um, interest in education that offered something different um, to children, that offered some more opportunities for all children. Uh, um, but she was quite directive about how she hoped that the change in life for children in the children's house will also affect families. So there was, again, an indirect political statement. She wanted the parents to be fully involved in the daily life of the children. She was expecting the teacher to live within the tenements in Rome, so that she would be experiencing the life of the families, that she would be more accessible, taking away some of the mystique of um, this educated woman helping their children. But she also taught children um, principles of hygiene and um, um, care for each other, something that she was then seeing the children would bring back to the families. What I have found interesting in recent reading that um, uh, Montessori actually didn't achieve this opportunity for the teacher to live with the families in the first children's house. It was possible only a couple of years later when she set up a um, nursery school in Milan where the teacher lived uh, with the families. And this is one of the principles which, which is virtually not sustainable in today's life. No teacher could be coerced to live within the communities of the families. And the irony of Montessori education today that the life conditions for many of the Montessori teachers are far from the conditions of life of the families from which the children come. Uh, I mean, there's a huge political and economic issues about the value of early childhood education uh, as it is perceived by society, because internationally, earliest educators are significantly undervalued, and that's reflected in their pay, despite the level of education that uh, many of them have to achieve to be able to do this important work with young children. So did Montessori consider the plight of the child and their families to be an injustice um, kind of imposed on this subset of, of, of society, um, which had to be corrected on kind of human rights grounds as we think of it today, like, say, the abolition of slavery? Or did she see the reform of education more broadly as an opportunity to help everyone, to help all mankind since... Well, everybody begins as a child. I think it was more the latter, even though um, I would like to think that um, her campaign for the rights of the child uh, was what was driving her. But I think there are also personal reasons why she campaigned so vigorously for the rights of the child. But she found through her own experience that the only way, only arena in which she would have impact really was through the education of young children and through her uh, in the day forward-looking principles of um, 
freedom with responsibility, um, the respect for the child, trusting the child's capacity to learn from, from the prepared environment. Those were quite innovative um, ideas about education in her day and to some extent remain innovative, but in a slightly different context um, in the beginning of the 21st century. So activists rarely act alone. And um, were there other people that kind of quickly recognized the importance of what she was doing and lent their own time and efforts and support? And how what happened in the early stages? I think what is so fascinating, how many mainstream teachers were attracted to the Montessori approach. Uh, for example, in the UK, um, there were several state schools that sent their teachers for training in Rome in 1913. And then it was those teachers who brought the Montessori approach to um, not only private education in the UK, but to also to state education. So, for example, the whole area of Acton uh, had... Um, used Montessori principles um, with the children in the infant schools, um, which we have not been able to replicate um, on the same scale ever since, even though um, I have noted that um, the uh, public Montessori movement in the United States has become very strong uh, over the last um, last few years, and they are very well organized in um, kind of finding a way of combining the Montessori approach with the requirements of state education in the U.S. Yeah, and I, I, I've heard about lots of um, well-funded efforts in the U.S. to try to bring more Montessori, although it's hard to tell how much Montessori. They sort of want the, they want the credibility of Montessori to add weight to their efforts, and it's hard at this point to tell you know, how much are they really taking on the principles or are they just kind of using the brand? It's, um, I guess, time, time will tell about that. Um, I but, think that's a continued challenge for all Montessorians globally. What do we really understand by Montessori? What are the key values which underpin what we do with the children? What we understand by authentic Montessori and who works within the context of the authentic Montessori. Nonetheless, if all children, I believe, if all children could be given a little bit more time to become independent, a little bit more time to engage with nature, to have a little bit more time to play and learn um, and find each one of their strengths, that, in turn, would help to make a stronger individual. I think that would plant the seeds of the potential activism because, in some ways, through the activities um, um, of Greta and her contemporaries, um, they blame um, the current state of the world on people of my generation, on their parents. But at the same time, I personally have a lot of hope in the strengths and in what they have to offer um, to the world for the future. I think they will not accept. So that 
what Montessori gives the child very early on is this physical independence. Children learn to be capable human beings who can do things for themselves. And that physical autonomy nurtures both intellectual and emotional autonomy. Uh, and those are the qualities that I would really want to foster in all children of today, not only those who benefit from Montessori education, so that they would be able to think for themselves and make decisions that are right, not only for themselves as an individual, but also right for the community in which they live. So they take on responsibility for humanity in small, small little ways, but understand that we are all interconnected and what we do as individuals actually impacts the whole planet. I think that's a lovely vision and um, I think that's a possibility. I think, but at the same time as you have people who are on board with that and who understand the Montessori values, um, it also puts some people's back up. So, you know, it must have happened even in the early days with her children's house, that there were some conventional teachers or educational administrators who saw what she was doing as a potential disruption of the established education system. And I remember when I opened my Montessori setting in California, um, very quickly ha had feedback from the local primary schools who were dead set against it. They said, oh, no, we can't have that. It makes the children too advanced compared to their kindergarten peers. Um, makes us look bad. So, I mean, I think any sort of disruption, and obviously activism is about disruption, um, will both have, um, you know, proponents as well as detractors. Yes, without any doubt. And I think um, I kind of welcome that disruption. I'm very pleased when the teacher who receives children who have had Montessori experience actually is challenged in the way how they think and how they consider the children. Because in itself, whilst it doesn't change the world, in some cases, it will actually open a way of opportunity to learn for the teacher. And for me, teaching is about continuous learning. It's so I'm continuously learning from the children and from the adults with whom I work. And I, I think that is a really important level of disruption. And if a, a five-year-old can disrupt your status quo, yeah. your understanding of who you are as a teacher... Um, and if you are open enough to receive it as an opportunity rather than as a criticism, I think that can bring change to society. Yeah, I think that's right. But, well, are people open to it? I think, I mean, one effect of COVID is I think people are less open or some people are less open. They're just more, they've closed up, you know, more protective. Um, whereas other people have seen a new perspective. Um, and I think it's, it, it depends upon what else is going on in their lives. But did Montessori herself, did she, I know she wanted to be apolitical, but did she lobby in any way? Did she try to influence government policy or educational practices through regulation or, or, um, structures? Um, or if she didn't, then do the Montessorians that followed her, do they do that sort of thing? Well, I think that, um, as Montessori has become more known, some of the barriers 
of the unknown or some of the challenges that Montessori education has presented uh, to educationists have been overcome. And what has happened that in many countries, there is funding available for Montessori education for nursery age, but also elementary and secondary education. And what has happened there, that um, the Montessori community have had to, or have to even today, articulate their practices within the constraints of uh, state curricula. And this is where there's a potential opportunity for Montessori, as I see it, for us to be able to demonstrate to the establishment that Montessori has got something to offer to all children, not just to the few privileged. Um, I'm not sure if we will succeed with that, um, but um, what I have observed in the UK, which has been really, really interesting since um, the early childhood education has become uh, part of the political agenda in the early 1990s and since um, um, a curriculum for early years has been introduced um, based on virtually identical principles of the child, uh, the environment and the relationship between the teacher in order to develop children's learning. We have been given the opportunity to actually demonstrate that we can uh, deliver um, some very unique experiences for young children. We have not always been good at articulating how we do it, but actually we have demonstrated that there is, that the pioneers um, along Montessori alongside with Steiner and Froebel actually provide a foundation for education which has got, which could have very positive influence on the future, if only we could abandon some of the um, focus on testing and assessment and measurement um, of children's achievements rather than uh, respect for the uniqueness of the children's thought and capacity to be creative. Yes, I agree. I think there's a kind of runaway scientism of data, data, data. Let's you know measure and uh, test and and assess and plan. Uh, following that kind of, it, to me, it's pseudoscience actually, but because it's 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 measuring, trying to measure things which have too many variables happening at the same time. And the essence of science is actually to have one variable isolated so that you can understand a mechanism. Um, and a lot of this social science and measurements that goes on is actually pseudoscience. So how, how effective do you think Montessori's followers are today as a kind of worldwide educational reform movement? Um, does anyone in authority seriously take notice of what this movement says and what's standing in the way of them being more effective? Um, I, I, I know that there's some progress, but surely after over a century, it should have more impact than it does. Well, we would have hoped it would have had more impact, but historically, uh, Montessori, whilst she wasn't um, advocating reform through connections with influential people in different communities, she has been given opportunity to be heard and to be considered, but it has not always been in her nature to work collaboratively with these people. Um, I think she over the years has become more and more protective of her 
compassion for the child and um, maybe has not been diplomatic enough in encouraging others to share in her vision of the child. And that in itself has meant that not only Montessori principles have not been included in some of the history of education courses that are offered in universities. So there, there's a, several generations of teachers or education philosophers who have not considered what Montessori had to offer to children. Um, but also it means that those people who don't um, entirely agree with her principles um, have not been able to engage in, her, in an informed dialogue with the Montessori community because the Montessori community themselves have been very much on the defensive and they would always be very protective and close ranks rather than open the doors to debate. Um, and um, I think if there had been an opportunity of more um, educational debate, if there had been more research, meaningful research into the value of um, Montessori education, we might have had we might have been able to see more impact, but it would also mean that perhaps we might lose some of the Montessori label uh, in the benefit of the child or of, of children as a whole. Yeah. It's a conundrum, and I think it's a work in progress. Um, there's, there's also the parents who are sending their children to Montessori settings. I mean, in a way, that represents a kind of consumer activism. You know, people in other situations might, you know, we, people used to talk about boycotting apartheid South Africa um, and their products and so on. Um, so they're choosing to spend their money on Montessori instead of other forms of early years provision. So do you think they're doing this because they support change in the education system or just because they think it will be better for their particular child? So, you know, what does the act of choosing Montessori tell the conventional educational system? I, I think that, I have to be very honest, um, parents choose it because um, it is the thing to do. It is what others do. There, there is a societal drive to towards buying a little bit of advantage for their children because the model in the UK is not that um, parents send their children to Montessori nursery for five days a week. The model is they will send their child to Montessori nursery for two or three days a week and they will go to the local playgroup for the other two days. So then, you know, it's, it's almost like pick and mix education. Um, and I don't blame the parents for those choices because how do you know what best to choose um, for your children? But as a community, we Montessorians don't help parents understand the values of what Montessori has to offer to their children. So when I reflect on um, the several hundred of children who have um, experienced Montessori education um, in the nursery that I used to run in Oxfordshire, Quite honestly, there's probably a handful of people, handful of those parents who have chosen it because of the values of respect for the child, because of the focus on giving children opportunities to be autonomous yet respectful. All those things which make 
the human being, the activist that we are looking for, for the future, actually have often been missed by the parents because they could see the value of their children learning their letters, being able to count. So th there's still a misunderstanding what education is about. For me, education is about far more than learning to read and write and count. It is about whole perspective on the world. It is about becoming a rounded human being. It's about being a person who is aware of others um, and who has got empathy, who is able to express solidarity with other people um, rather than fighting to be the best for the best outcome of their education, to get to the best school, to the best university. Because we see that those um, trends in trying to be the best often lead to huge disillusion for, um, uh, for the young people as they come to realize that there is something missing in their life. And we come back to the spiritual element, to the way how this child has been valued as an individual, how the child has shared his life's experiences with his family and with his friends rather than just being driven to do homework, to sit exams, to achieve well in school. Yeah. I, I did um, uh, participated in a question and answer session at one of our s subscribing schools um, where the parents submitted um, a dozen questions beforehand. And then the head teacher and I tried to answer them from a Montessori perspective. And it was really hard work. I mean, the parents... Some of the parents were open to it. Some of them were not. Um, but it was really very much a persuasion um, task of one parent at a time. You know, there was very hard to just make pronouncements and everyone go, oh, yes, that's that's the case. People had already so many preformed opinions and, and they talked about, oh, there's different styles of parenting. And I can see the sense of that. But, um, you know, we prefer another style. So I can understand why it's been slow and difficult because, uh, you know, persuading the parents because it's really a case of family by family having to communicate these, uh, you know, these values. It's, it's interesting you should say that um, because in the mid-90s, 1990s, um, we have written a course for parents at the college where I worked and I have piloted it in my nursery. I wanted to see how effective it was. Um, um, and it was offered free of charge to the parents in the nursery, but um, the parents who, of very young children, so newborn children, had to pay a little bit of money to attend um, in order to pay for the hall that we rented. And I had only one parent of the existing children who attended those sessions, but I had about 10 parents of newborn children ranging from one month all the way to 12 months. And um, as we discussed some of the ideas about parenting, as we discussed some of the aspects of the children's development and why certain parenting styles work better than others, um, Every single one of those um, parents of the younger children then signed up their child to the nursery. And they have continued to be a very committed, supportive parents throughout the years. Um, and so it is something to do with helping parents understand what Montessori offers to their children 
at an early stage before they necessarily make the decision to send their child to Montessori school. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting insight that I think it's absolutely true. The parents, new parents, even during pregnancy, are way more open to concepts and principles than even those who've had a few years of, you know, <laughs> trouble at home with disciplining and the realities of uh, organizing uh, daycare and things like that. That's true. Do, do, are there other political activists or social reformers who've who've tried to co-opt Montessori's views to further their own cause? You know, who've pacifists or religious groups or human rights campaigners who've said, "Oh, we're we take a Montessori perspective on that." Um, I think what happened during um, a summer of 2020, there has been a very strong group of. Uh, Black activists, Montessori activists in the U.S. who have supported Black Lives Matter and the current CEO of the American Montessori Society, um, Dr. Aiza, is black and he continues to promote a very strong voice for the minorities in the States and tries to promote um, the public Montessori schools which offer opportunities to children and families who don't have to pay for Montessori education. And I have um, very much respected um, his commitment to wanting to make Montessori teacher training accessible to minorities. Because, again, if you look at the uh, social profile of uh, Montessori-trained teachers, um, they are seldom um, people... Because they have to, you have to pay for your Montessori teacher training. We actually don't attract the people who could take it to the communities where children could really benefit from um, Montessori education. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that in the UK. It's, it's great that that's happening in the US, that other social movements are seeing the value of Montessori mm -hmm. in, in supporting... Um, uh, social reform. So I think that that's really good. I'd like to see more of that here. On the on the uh, other side, there's a lot of cynicism about, uh, especially among young people, about what they call social justice warriors, who go around with a boastful sense of moral superiority. Um, do you think the Montessori movements ever suffered from that sort of backlash of accusations about? you know, being morally superior. I, I mean, I have to say, to be completely honest, there is a detectable degree of kind of arrogance or condescension in some corners of the Montessori community. Um, but is it is it a, gener a, a general issue or, or, or not so much? I feel it's, li speaking simply from the UK perspective, I think that um, social arrogance is a little bit less to what it was, um, let's say, um, 30 years ago when I started my nursery. Um, some of it has happened because uh, we have been able to engage in more dialogue with other earliest practitioners. We have been better at listening to what other people have said. But I have been to many, um, many events where a Montessorians would stand up and say, well, but this is nothing new. Montessori has said that many years ago already, which in itself um, kind of puts us on a, on a different platform that we try to hold very tight to everything Montessori and are not open uh, through a dialogue because 
that kind of statement could be could have been done in a different ways. They could have teased out some of the principles which were very similar to Montessori and use um, specific examples to argue their point. So some of this difficulty of really effective open dialogue with the community about what Montessori has to offer is partly to do with the lack of education that many Montessori teachers have. Because throughout my um, Montessori career, when I first started teaching Montessori, um, the entry requirements into Montessori course were very, very low. And um, because in those days, there was um, not an opportunity to study Mon um, early years <clears throat> through wide range of courses, it has meant that um, these Montessori teachers who then set up schools were inundated with pupils. And so the economic drive has stopped them from actually wanting to learn a little bit more about child development. And also there are still many, many Montessori courses which only focus on Montessori perspective of child development. Whereas if we look at her perspective of children's development, we can tease out through the um, developmental theory that has evolved during 20th century, that there is a connection between her pedagogy and many of the principles by of Piaget, of uh, Vygotsky, um, of Ericsson. So there are, by making stronger connections, we could demonstrate the validity of Montessori education a little bit more effectively than, than we have been able to do. And sometimes, as you know, ignorance promotes arrogance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah, all of us have a job to do in 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 cr building those bridges and and cr creating that um, more modern context for Montessori, so that people see it as part of a um, effectively a coalition of interest in helping uh, er early childhood to to realize its potential for. Um, for not just human development, but for social justice as well. So a lot of modern social campaigners talk about intersectionalism. So, for example, between the environmentalists and human rights, um, you know, in the way that climate change will impinge most upon the world's poorest. So it's um, not just intersectionalism in how the justices, injustices arise, but also the benefits of potential advances and how they're mutually reinforcing. Would you agree that Montessori was maybe the original intersectionalist um, performer, sort of driving forward change, not just in education, but in children's rights and feminism and in inclusivity, nature conservation, international relations, and maybe more? Absolutely. She has had something to say about each one of these elements. She has contributed, not necessarily by waving the flag and saying, you need to protect the planet, but allowing the child to understand the interconnectedness of all life. She has given children tools through which they could become those campaigners of today because they would have a better understanding um, of um, life on the planet, better understanding of the interdependence. So, yes, I think that indirectly, she most certainly um, had many of these original ideas which could contribute to today's debate or which 
could have been indirectly absorbed by the young people who are today's campaigners if they had benefited from uh, elements of Montessori education. That seems like a good place to stop for now. Thanks again to Barbara and David, and we'll see you in the next episode.